This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Michael Robotham, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. Always super excited to talk to you. So let me introduce you to those that may not have heard of you. I can't imagine there'd be very many out there. Before becoming a novelist, Michael was an investigative journalist working across America, Australia and Britain. As a journalist and a writer, he has investigated notorious cases such as the serial killer couple Fred and Rosemary West. He has worked with clinical and forensic psychologists as they help police investigate complex psychological-driven crimes. Michael's debut thriller, The Suspect, sold more than one million copies around the world. It's the first of eight novels featuring clinical psychologist Joe O'Loughlin, who faces his own increasing battle with a potentially debilitating disease. Michael has also written four standalone thrillers. In 2015, he won the UK prestigious Crime Writers Association Gold Dagger Award with his standalone thriller, Life or Death. Now, Michael has a new book out today... Today is publication day and it's called When She Was Good, which is kind of a follow-on from Good Girl, Bad Girl, isn't it? It is, yeah. They're standalone, but it is a follow-on. Yeah, it's one of the one of the things, that's, uh, uh, comments I got most after I finished Good Girl, Bad Girl was there had better be a sequel. Even all the reviewers said the same thing because there were quite a few unanswered questions um, in that first book. So the story does arc across two books, but if you picked up the second book, you're straight into the story. You don't have to have read the first book to read the second one. So give us a little overview of of Good Girl, Bad Girl and When She Was Good because they're new characters, aren't they? Yeah, it's the start of a new series and there are two main characters. Uh, One is a psychologist. I seem to not be able to get away from psychologists as main characters. His name is Cyrus Haven. Yes, He actually makes an appearance in um, a book called The Secret She Keeps. Um, it plays a small role in that. Cyrus Haven has a tragic backstory, his entire family. He came home from soccer practice when he was 13 years old to discover his entire family were dead. And I guess this is a sort of trauma or tragedy that's influenced his life and his choice of career. But the other main character is a very troubled young teenage girl called Evie Cormack. And seven or six or seven years ago, Evie was discovered hiding in a secret room where a man had been murdered in a terrible way. Nobody was aware that there was a child hiding in the walls uh, until weeks afterwards. And when she emerged, she refused to reveal her identity or her age. And a worldwide search failed to identify her. The story actually begins six years later where she is almost 18 and she's been given a name, Evie Cormack, And Cyrus Haven believes the only way that she'll ever be free of her demons is if he discovers the truth about her and who she really is. But there's a reason she's maintained her silence. 
And um, the closer he gets to discovering who she truly is, the more danger that he puts her in and himself mm. in as well. Now, you know I love your books and I've been a big fan for a long time. I've been thinking about Evie and I've been thinking about you having three daughters. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about where that character came from. Um, I think my, my daughter, I mean, there's a bit of Evie um, there's a bit of Evie in all of uh, uh, all of my daughters, and there's a bit of my daughters in all of Evie, I suppose. Um, I mean, she's very troubled, um, and my daughters are nowhere near um, that troubled, although they have their moments. Uh, and I guess, I mean, Evie has a the thing that fascinates most people about Evie is that she has the ability to tell when someone is lying. And I'm fascinated by this whole issue of human lie detectors, if they exist. A lot of evidence suggests that there are people that have astonishing abilities, up to an 80% ability to tell when someone's lying, but they have normally spent decades training or working in child services or the prison service or the police or customs. Evie is very young and has this ability. And there is a growing body of evidence, although it's not conclusive, that when a child has been abused, and there's no doubt that Evie Cormack you know, had been abused when they discovered her, that they develop this innate sense of when they're going to be hit or hugged in that split second because they've grown up with someone that has that sort of hair trigger mm. um, mood or temper. So I've given Evie this ability, but it's not a gift. It's a, it's a complete curse because um, as you'll, the readers will, will come to realise as you read through it, it is a horrible thing to go through life knowing knowing when people are lying to you because we lie to each other all the time for the best possible. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, we can't even read the news now and trust whether it's true or not. I think we have moved into a whole area of lying that's not existed before. And you're right. I mean, that's a sort of, you know, political lies or, or society lies. But I'm talking about, you know, when we, we started this, podcast you know first thing you said you said hi Michael great to see you now that could have been a lie and you know when you say to your friend oh, gee I love your hair mm. gee, gee that's interesting um oh, I'm five minutes away you know uh, I bought it on special I mean all those tiny little lies we say it's, it's what keeps families together and relationships together and friendships together you know oh yeah I love your new boyfriend you know I mean all these things we say to people what if you, you know, even three simple words like I love you or I miss mm. you, mm. what if when they were uttered you suddenly knew that they were not genuine? I mean, it would be a horrible thing to have, mm. that sort of ability. And, and Cyrus realises that very early on with Evie, that Evie will never have a normal life. She will never have a normal relationship or a normal friendship. This damaged girl will always have to, you know, be looked after in a sense or watched because she is cursed with this ability. I want to go back to the seed of the characters and where they start. I really felt that Evie was um, demonstrated such, you know, as well as being unusual, she was naughty and irritating at times and she was a teenager, right? So you grow up with that and you write, so of course she's not one of your daughters but she's all three, as you were saying, but... Where does that the seed of that idea come from? Are you looking around you and they're your influences? And I guess the seed of the idea of, I mean, 
whenever I've written teenagers, and even with the Joe Lachlan series, I had Joe's daughters and yes. uh, I, Charlie, his eldest daughter, I sort of started when she was eight and she grew up to be a, at, at university when I finished that series. So I used my daughters as templates for that. And so many of the lines that came out of Charlie's mouth came directly out of my daughter's mouth, you know. Mm. Um, even I remember classic sort of conversation where Joe asked Charlie, you know, because he discovers that one of Charlie's school friends had had sex and Charlie was sort of by then probably 14 or 15 or maybe 16 and he just sort of says to her, ask Charlie if she's had sex. And Charlie sort of pleads the fifth and has this wonderful argument about why if she lied to him, she'd disappoint him, but if she told him the truth, she was disappointing him as well, so it's just best if she says nothing at all. And he's left scratching his head wondering, how did I get had like that? And it was the same conversation I had with one of my daughters. She used exactly the same logic on me. But I guess, I mean, that's where those sorts of things I definitely get. I mean, the seed of the idea for for Evie came from um, from the man who mistook his wife for a hat, the amazing Oliver Sacks. Ah, book. the Oliver Sacks um, books. Do you know, I, um, I was in New York a few years back, you know, back when we could travel, <laughs> um, and I got to have a peek of his apartment because I oh, interviewed really? his partner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. He's amazing. He's an amazing man. And, and in, in that book, he talks about walking through an aphasia ward at, in a hospital. And aphasia sufferers recognize items. They might recognize a pair of scissors. What are they? Can you explain that? Aphasia. Their face. So, and what it is, it's a, it's a brain injury where they can recognize something like a pair of scissors, but they can't tell you what it is. You say, what's this called? And you hold mm. up a pair of scissors. They go, oh, that's, you know, that's. Um, and they just cannot pull the word up, even though they know what it does. And they could even say things like, you cut with them, mm. but can't find the word. Oh, well, Michael, um, that happens to me almost every day. <laughs> <laughs> but the odd thing was that Oliver Sacks was, what they, they, these aphasia patients were watching Ronald Reagan on TV um, making a speech. And they were laughing at each other. And Oliver Sacks said, what's wrong? And they, they said, well, he's lying. Now, they had no concept because of their brain injuries, of what he was saying, Ronald Reagan, but they knew he was lying, okay, because they were reading something in his body language or his micro-expressions. They were picking it up, you know, and I suddenly became completely fascinated with the idea of, of micro-expressions and there's a wonderful academic, the world's expert, world's expert on lying is a man called Professor Paul Ekman who has made, he spent his career studying this idea of micro-expressions, how how we give ourselves away with these, things, these tiny expressions that last less than a 20th of a second, you know, that are virtually almost subliminal, mm-hmm. but some people can read them, you know, and that fascinates me as well. And that's where the idea came from. I mean, I'm going to take it back to politics because if he was watching Donald Trump, or well, they were watching Donald Trump at the time, I guess you don't need to be an expert to know that 90% of what he's saying is untruthful. No, it's very true. It's funny, but oddly enough, I mean, lying... Lying is part of our DNA. You know, newborn babies learn to fake cry before they're a year old. By the age of, you know, three, they've learned to bluff. You know, by the age of four, their lies, if they get too big, they realise they have to tone them down because no one believes the true whoppers. And, and evolutionary psychologists believe that lying is actually bred into our DNA. Now, Donald Trump is a supreme example, but he's a narcissist, of course, mm. you know, where, I mean, his lies are so huge, but there are still many, many people that want to believe him, you know, and seem to believe these lies. Uh, but it's a fundamental 
fact of human life. But I think the difference now is the fact that it's become so tribal and polarised that people just choose to ignore the other side of any, ignore the truth. I mean, the truth has become a movable feast, you know. Mm -hmm. They don't believe that facts are facts anymore. You you give someone a fact and they say, no, no, that's your opinion, and you have to stop them and go, no, 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 that's not an opinion. That is a fact. There's a difference between a fact and an opinion. Mm. Well, I mean, you know, you could just say face mask and (laughs) that's going to be divisive and, you know, some people have a truth about it and some people don't. Do you think that because lying is part of our DNA, why is it then that's always perceived as a negative? Oddly enough, it's, it's not always perceived as a negative as well. I mean, there's a great study I read about recently where, okay, if you were given a choice between someone who lied to protect someone else, mm. okay, they are actually considered to be worthier than someone that doesn't lie at all. Do you understand what mm. I'm saying? So mm. when people are asked to rate them in terms of, you know, compassion or respect, they rate the person that lies, albeit lies to protect someone else, more mm. so than the person that doesn't lie at all, okay? And so it's a, we have a really strange relationship with the truth, you know, and that's why we, you know, we, we lie to our children about, you know, Santa Claus mm. and the tooth fairy. We lie mm. all the time, you know. Mm. Um, but I think that's the, I think that ambivalence we have towards lying is it's, uh, I mean, the big lies, the ones that affect governments and, 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 and countries and, and, and politics, that's, they are different. I mean, we, we hate to see our politicians, we know our politicians lie. We know, but even the politicians we admire and respect, we know they've been guilty of lying at some point. Mm. But then, you know, on average, every one of us lies between 20 and 200 times a day, you know. Mm. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. So Cyrus, I want to talk about Cyrus a little bit because he's an interesting character. Where did he come from? Is he the young Michael Robotham? No, I think I'd, no, he's braver and smarter than I am. <laughs> Where did he come from? No, I had, a, I had an idyllic childhood. I guess, you know... I guess I wanted to create a character who, in, in, in the case of Joe Lachlan, I created a character whose who's flaw, he who, it was, it was, it was a man who had a brilliant mind but a crumbling body. I gave him early onset Parkinson's because I never intended to write a series with him. And I guess when I came up with Cyrus, I wanted someone younger, and Cyrus is only in his early 30s, but I wanted someone damaged. And I've always been fascinated with the idea of of the lone survivor of things, you know, what it must be like 
the survivor guilt in a sense, like to be the lone person that walks out of a plane crash, the mm. one person to survive. What must it be like to go through mm. life being mm. that person? And um, so I quite like the idea of making him a survivor. And the assumption is that's the reason he became a forensic psychologist to either to understand how, how and why his family died. And I guess the beauty of the relationship between Cyrus and Evie is that Evie Cormac has got every reason to never, ever trust a man again. I mean, mm. and yet in Cyrus she sees someone that's as damaged as she is. And I think that's the moment when she realised that this man who wants to help her is actually as damaged, if not more damaged than she is, that she finally decides to trust him. Mm. I found that he had, you know, perhaps a bit more patience than I would have with her. It's, it's an interesting, I mean, this is a great thing with, in a sense, when you create a character in crime fiction who can tell when someone's lying, you're on track to write the shortest crime novel in history. I mean, normally the only way you can make a character like Evie work is to make her a compulsive liar and so damaged and so uncontrollable that no one believes her when Evie does say, oh, by the way, someone's lying. Nobody believes her. Mm. And you're right, there will come a point with Evie because but you have to stop and tell yourself, look at what she's been through and she's got, and you think, how on earth can you expect her not to be completely screwed up? Mm. But um, also she'll grow up. Of course she will. And she'll grow, and, and there's a limit to how much I can do with her in a sense because you're right, there'll come a point in time where the reader will go, well, I'm losing sympathy with her now because she's too self-destructive. She's mm. too... You know, she doesn't realise that people are trying to help her and mm. she's pushing them away. And so that's a balancing act that I have to overcome. It's what makes you such a great writer. Um, I want to talk about a character and plot because I think you do those things very, very well. What comes to you first when you sit down, like when you first sat down to write these, was it the plot or was it the characters that came first? Was it Cyrus who came first or was it? No, it's always the, it's always, it's a bit of both. There's always a character. I mean, character is the most important thing. I mean, if I had a three-word slogan, um, which I don't, but if I did, it would be make them care um, in terms of make the reader care. So I want to create characters that live and breathe in the page that readers absolutely care about and will take this journey with. But then there'll also be the hook moment. And in this case, I, I love the idea of, of someone being murdered in a house and no one realising that there was a child hiding in the walls. Mm. And that, so that's all I had to start with, the idea of a child, a man murdered in a house, child hiding in the walls. And then I, it all grew from that. I guess the really challenging thing about this book is that as I said, it can be read as a standalone uh, when she was good, but because it does arch across two books, I had to plant clues in the first book that I had to live with in the second book because I didn't plot my books, as you know I've mentioned. No. I don't plot my books in advance. So there are a number of times when I'm writing and I, writing that, I was writing that second book and I had to go back and say, no, I can't do that because this is what I said. Uh, right. And in a perfect world, I would have written both of them before either was published. But that wasn't possible either. And no. so it was a really interesting exercise of having to, to live with those clues. And do you write chronologically? Up to a point. If I get absolutely stuck and I know, 
I never know far. I always know there's maybe one or two scenes ahead. And if I get stuck on a particular scene, I'll go and write, I'll go and write a scene that's coming later. Uh, and, and occasionally I'll come up with ideas for an ending and I'll, I'll jot those down and keep them in a folder in the hope that I might get there. I've talked to many authors, as you know, Michael. I often paraphrase you for different things that you've said to me over the years because we've been friends for a while. But one of my favourites is, and I won't get this right, and I have used it in a podcast, is when people are talking about how the characters, when writers are talking about how characters live in their head and that that story is there and you really can't escape it even though you're not writing, you're thinking it all the time. And I remember the story you once told me where Vivian, your wife, said, are you with her? Yeah. Is that right? Tell yeah. me that story. You know, when I write, I when I, when I write female characters and in this case the, the book is narrated by Evie, half the book is narrated by Evie, and that, um, and I've done that with some novels, like The Secret She Keeps, is another yeah. one from two female narrators. And Vivian, my wife, had to come to terms with the fact that I spent a year with these other women, you know, mm-hmm. and it was like having an affair. And we'd be out for dinner, and Vivian would see my eyes glaze over, and I'd get a kick out of the table, and she'd go, "You're with her, aren't you?" And, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they live. I mean, when when the the point comes where people are reading the book, and if there's something very suspenseful happening, because I I haven't planned ahead, I am often lying awake thinking, you know, when that was being written, saying, how am I going to finish? How am I going to get him out, get her out of that? I mean, how am I going to save them? How? And so, um, it's a very organic way, an exciting way to write, but you lose a lot of sleep and hair. <laughs> I can see that you've lost a little bit of hair. Talk to me about, so you had a, feel, a book being adapted to uh, the, to TV this year, yep. haven't you? I have. It was The Secret She Keeps, is that right? Mm-hmm. And I watched it. And, you know, as much as I did enjoy it, and I did, but it was nothing like the book. So tell me first how it came about and what your involvement was. Um, well, The Secret She Keeps... I had two offers, one from the UK and one from Australia, Lingo Pictures. And I went with Lingo because when I've had books made into films in the past, it's always been in Germany and I've had no involvement at all because of the language issue and and because Lingo Pictures, who are a wonderful new company that did Lambs of God, the wonderful Morel Day book, and uh, they remade Wake in Fright, so they've made some good dramas. And it gave me the opportunity to go into the writing room and, and you did do that. Yeah, and I was yeah. in the writing room and I storyboarded it and I, I mean, it did teach me why I love being a novelist though because mm. the thing is, as a novelist, I am God mm. and, and doesn't, you know, what I, would, what I say goes, you know, in the yeah. sense. You know, I'd be mad not to listen to all my editors but really I get the final say. But when you do a TV production, you get producer notes and network notes and distributor notes and director's notes and actor's notes and you get all these people wanting to put their oar in, you know, and you feel like telling them all to just go away, do it this way. (laughs) So did you write the script? No, I didn't. It was written by um, John O'Gavin and Sarah Walker who who did a wonderful job. Look, I just think they they did... I think they captured the essence of the book. I mean, oh, I for they, sure, for they, sure. I, I think it was very breathless in its tone, if you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, and yeah, I enjoyed of, it. Yeah, some of the subtleties were lost in the, um, because it was so rapidly cut. And there were moments when, like it's interesting reading the script, there are moments where I wanted to, I wanted to stay longer with the actors. I wanted to see more of the impact and see more dialogue. 
But directors want to tell the story in as few words as possible, so they want to take words out, whereas as a writer I want to put words back in. Um, And, I mean, it's astonishing well. I mean, it's it's gone to air. It's the first Australian drama to premiere on BBC One primetime ever and it got three and a half million people watching it on the first night and it's gone completely haywire in 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 the uk um which is wonderful for australian drama to have done done oh terrific i mean i found it compelling viewing but of course because i'd read the book you just keep comparing and do you know i saw you in it i think i saw you in the camera yeah i i get my stanley my little alfred hitchcock (laughs) stanley cameo which was about nine hours of waiting around to be man in cafe doing crossword (laughs) It's very funny. The reason that came about was I was joking. I was doing a radio interview on Radio National and I jokingly said they asked me about the filming, which it just was about to begin, and I jokingly said that I was sort of hoping that I might get a little cameo and that the producer was in her car and heard the interview and rang me that afternoon and said, there's a cafe scene, you know, in a few weeks' time, do you want to be in it? You know, And uh, there you go. There you go. Well, and that was quite real because you do a lot of your writing in cafes, don't you? Well, you used to. Yeah, yeah, probably less so now, but I used to do a lot in a lot in cafes, and it was sort of uh, it was um, it was an interesting. I mean, the one thing I discovered about filming is it's incredibly boring <laughs> to go out mm-hmm. on set. I only went on set about three or four times. Normally, I'd work out when the catering was due to stacks of food. <laughs> it was so good, but the actual watching it film. I mean, it was just to watch them do the same scene 16 different times. Oh, I found that boring. But I do have a greater respect for the actors now because I used to think TV actors had it easy because they could just, you know, reshoot the scene. But to have to maintain the level of emotion mm. over and over and time and time again, just and then they, the camera stops and they change the lighting and they do it again and again, that's some seriously hard work. Mm-hmm, definitely. We were talking earlier, just because, before we press record, we were talking about the life of a writer in, um, during COVID and you were suggesting that maybe your life hasn't changed. Talk to me about how, I mean, it has changed to some level, I'm sure, but the impact that you think that that's going to have on writing or will it have an impact on writing? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, look, in a sense, the self-isolation has ha- hasn't had an impact because, you know, I've been doing this for 27 years in one way or another, either as a ghostwriter or as a novelist. So getting up in the morning and coming out to my office hasn't changed. I was having a discussion with my oldest daughter is a singer-songwriter-producer in LA, um, Alex Hope, and, and we're having this discussion because... I don't think I've been as productive as I should have been given, you know, that I'm not touring and doing events like I would normally have been doing. And she as a songwriter producer said that a lot of creative people are struggling. It's almost as Mm -hmm. though they're struggling to get to to think of something to write about that, you know, it's like I've recently been asked to do a, a newspaper article on the spring of optimism and I can't think of anything to be optimistic about, about, you know. But, yeah, so I, I think that's changed for a lot of people. I think a lot of creative people have struggled. I know Tim Minchin talks about the fact, no, no, people should just use that creative time to write that musical and write those songs and write that album. But it's not always that easy in lockdown. Do you know, I think, you know, and, and you say you've been in isolation for 27 years, but there is a collaboration in our social life. And even though you write, you know, most writers write alone and solitary, they bring back with them 
what's in the outside world. And at the moment, I'm feeling that's what I'm not connected to. Mm. I think with me, it's more the, um, it's the international travel. I guess I suppose I do so much reading and I'm a newspaper junkie still being an old journo. I don't know whether the interactions, I mean, I miss seeing friends and interacting with people. I'm sure that's an issue. Travelling, really. Travelling is what, you know, I would normally, this time of year, have been overseas at least two or three times so far. Mm. That I find difficult. And also not knowing when, when I've got two daughters, and two, two daughters overseas, one at home, but even when I'll see them again, you know, mm. um, that I find hard. Yeah. I, do you know what I think is hard too? The unknown. We just don't know anything. I was speaking to Petty Carey from New York the other day. We, we recorded a podcast, which you know, it was a great conversation, but he said he was having trouble reading. Um, um, yeah. Because it's interesting. Right? I mean, it's funny because it's interesting. You say, for example, When She Was Good, you know, the new book, that's actually set now, okay? It's actually mm. set in 2020. It begins in March 2020. And, of course, it was written before covid was even on the scene, which means I actually, in the, in the acknowledgements, I actually have to, I say, look, please understand, this book was written before the, and, and edited before any of this happened because I don't want people reading it and saying, you know, well, why, hold on, why aren't there lockdowns? Why is everyone walking why around? Is it? <laughs> but by the same token, I'm writing a book that's now set early next year and I don't know what the world's going to be like. So I'm, I'm actually dropping references in talking about, oh, that happened during lockdown. And I'm thinking, well, there could be multiple lockdowns between now and then. Mm. I find that quite difficult when you're writing contemporary stuff. Uh, mm. And, you know, there are also people coming out saying, oh, you know, who's going to write the first sort of COVID thriller, you know, the sort of murder by Zoom call or whatever. And part of me thinks, well, it could be, it could be over really quickly. And another part thinks, no, maybe there's plenty of time to write that sort mm. of mm. Yeah, it's a great unknown, isn't it? Yeah. Michael, I'm going to let you go. What a wonderful chat. Congratulations. I hope you enjoy touring by Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) I really think um, it's not as funny as we think. There is, you know, we talked about this earlier too before we started recording. There is an audience out there for for people that are really experiencing, um, you know, listening to authors and seeing dancers and watching theatre that they haven't had access to before. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the positives that's come out of this. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I think um, it'll be very, I mean, it's going to, the book world will change, I think. Mm. I, I talked to my publishers about this saying, you know, when this is all over, do you think you'll go back to touring authors? You know, when, and some of them aren't sure. You know, because, you know, if online and Zoom sort of events work incredibly well and reach lots of people, then maybe that will mean that there's less physical touring. We just don't know, do we? Thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, Join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device.
Belinda. We're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.